The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in the satsang, I will continue with the presentation and the analysis of one of the three very fundamental texts of the Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga tradition. And uh, I'm talking, of course, about the Geranda Samhita. I made the presentation about this text and the scri this scriptural tradition in the introductory lecture about this text. It's probably already up on the internet, so you can find those commentaries. Geranda is a great yogi, and this is the most recent of these three texts. It's somewhere in the 18th century, in the end of the 18th century. And um, this makes uh, the text very elaborate, very precise, very encyclopedic. Also, Geranda is the owner, or it is the transmitter of a very particular tradition of yoga, you are going to see also in what concerns uh, the asanas today. Geranda is the only one who has a chapter about kriyas, about purification practices, which we already have analyzed in the previous satsangs. And Geranda has created, or maybe he inherited it from his ancestors, he inherited it from his teachers, that he had together, he has a system of yoga which is based approximately on seven levels. Like he sees yoga as a progression with seven levels. And in the beginning you need to get purification and that's what the Kriyas were for. And then you need to get inner and outer strength, which means outer strength is obvious. It means that the body should be strong, physically speaking. And the inner strength, which is more like a manifestation of the willpower, Inner strength is understood either as Bala, the magnetic power that you are having like the nine lives of the cat. That would be a way of understanding empirically this inner strength. But inner strength also means a psychological, emotional, psychosomatic strength which, which gives a certain kind of perseverance, a certain kind of almost stubbornness, we can say, a willpower. People, like the syntag, you know, there's a title of a movie called The Quiet American, you know, and it's about when you have such a personality, you know, some people don't speak much and do a lot. They are quiet and very persevering typologies. This inner strength is envisaged here, and Geranda considers that this outer and inner strength is coming to the human being through the practice of asanas. That's why talking to his disciple Chanda Kapali, he is now going to the second lesson. Um, you are going to see that although Geranda describes a system with seven steps, the text itself has not been divided in seven chapters as you would expect. Although the first chapters are one chapter, one level. In the end, he puts several levels in one chapter. He becomes more brief because it's more difficult to explain in vast detail. 
<clears throat> some of the very discrete aspects of the mind, but for the time being it sticks to this. Every chapter corresponds to one of the levels. The chapter number one corresponded to the Kriyas and how to obtain purification. The chapter number two is consecrated to what classically in yoga we call asanas or postures of the body. And this is a practice which Garanda believes that it gives you outer strength and inner strength. If we take only the outer strength out of this, then automatically we are reduced to understand yoga as a form of gymnastics, as a form of development of the body only, which it isn't. We should never forget this inner strength, which is not only a strength of the body, but it is a strength of the psyche, it's a strength of the mind, it is a strength of one's energy. So, in the lesson number two, Yaranda starts with the first of the shlokas, and he starts explaining to his disciple the following. He says, first of all, he speaks generally about the postures of the body, and he says there are as many postures as numbers of species of living creatures in this universe. By this, Geranda gives a very interesting statement because basically Geranda says that all the postures essentially are just ways of copying creatures. Like the yogis lived in nature, they looked at the birds, they looked at the animals, and exactly as the Taoists created the tiger style of martial arts or in Tai Chi or in Qigong, and they created the crane style and they created the eagle style by copying the movements of different creatures that they saw around them. The famous Shaolin story with a monk who witnessed two animals fighting, and this is how the first styles of Shaolin martial arts came to be. Exactly in the same way, but much less bellicose, much less battle-oriented. We are not talking about martial arts, we are talking about peace arts. And therefore, in a non-war-oriented way, the yogis also studied the nature and they copied from the nature whatever they thought it was making sense. Like in the Kriyas, we talked a little bit about the imitation of the tiger, that some yogis seeing tigers vomiting, they thought that it is perhaps that vomiting which keeps the tiger supple and the strongest of the animals of the Indian jungle. And thus, uh, remember that the, from the very beginning, a great yogi like Geranda makes you think about this. When you think about postures of the body, you are doing like the cat and like the giraffe, and you are doing like a horse, and you are doing like a turtle, and you are doing, you are basically imitating animals. You have the human body, and with this human body, you can also produce some animal imitation. And he continues in the same strophe. He says, well, therefore, there are like gazillions of ways of putting the body. But he says Shiva himself has described 84 lakhs of them. The lakh is a typical measure of India, which is 100,000. So 84 hundreds of thousands means, in Western language, 8,400,000 of them. 
Uh, it is interesting that while most scholars ascribe Geranda as being a Vaishnava yogi, and that's why the Geranda Samhita is a more tame text of yoga, there are other texts of yoga which go, which push the envelope further, they are wilder in character. Nevertheless, Geranda himself acknowledges immediately that the father of the yoga tradition is Shiva himself. He says Shiva himself has described 8,400,000 asanas. You are going to say, is this accounted for anywhere? No. There is no text in this universe. It would probably have to be as big as a library. There is no text in this world which describes 8,400,000 postures of the body. Many people think that it would be utopian to have one eight million ways of putting the body. You'd have to make differences like the little finger is like this and the little finger is like this. And that would make two different positions of the body because otherwise you simply don't have combination of the positions of the limbs of the body so many as, as to make eight million of them. That's why, of course, um, the idea is that the number itself is very symbolic. Why 84 lakhs of them? It's like, what's so special? Well, the yogis were great, great fans of numerology. They liked very special numbers. And 84, as well as 64, 32, 49, 108, and a few other such numbers, 84 is a very special number. Why? Because 84 is the multiplication of two very sacred numbers. It's 7 times 12. 12 is the number of the sun in India, the number of the spokes of Anahata, and it is related to the heart chakra. And 7 is 7, is the sacred number of the planes of the universe, of the chakras, and all the rest. And that's why in the moment when you say, that there are 84 something, that 84 doesn't need to be literally true. You would add just something which is just tiny. You would, ache, you would add some phantom member to that family just so that all in all they list as 84. Why? Because 84 sounds infinitely better than 83 or 85. 84 is a very special number. And if you have a numerological way of thinking, then you want things to be in a very peculiar number that is encountered very, very much in the world of yoga, where people, when they do yoga techniques, when they measure time, when they do different things, they always choose units of time. Like we always hear in the class, we teach 12 sun salutations. We don't do 13 sun salutations. We don't do 9 sun salutations. We do 12. 12 is a privileged number for sun salutations. And it's believed that if you do 12 sun salutations, you have the effects of the sun salutations plus an additional effect which comes from the harmony with the universe. The numerological harmony which you create creates an additional blessing which is brought to you. And that's why, of course, the asanas, which nobody can list, there's nobody who can list even a thousand part of those asanas you can't list even 8400 asanas but theoretically there were 84 and because the indians count not in millions or in thousands like in the western 
mathematics, but because they, their next big unit is called luck, which is 100,000, there are 84 of those. There are 84 grands. If you, instead of calling a 1,000 a grand, you would call a luck a grand, like in Indian style, those are 84 grand asanas, the 84 big unit asanas. And then, of course, that is like the legend. Like nobody knows them, but it's a sort of a urban legend that originally Shiva was so creative that he revealed no less than 8 million asanas. Then, of course, to come down to reality, because the yogis are practical people and they need to do these things, then he cuts it down steeply. Not he does, he inherited it. He heard the story from his predecessors. And in the second shloka, he says, among those eight million ones, 84 are the important ones. So now, okay, we can conceive of 84 asanas. There are teachers like Direndra Brahmachari who teach in their system about 100 or 108 to 108 different asanas. There are others who went into the more gymnastic hatha yoga and who went into maybe... 150, 200 asanas. There is a pictorial book of asanas in Hatha Yoga, a very gymnastic book. Uh, but in that, and in that book, there are approximately 600 photos. Doesn't mean there are 600 asanas because some asanas have two or three photos to them. But all in all, there are about 600 photos. So we can assume there are about three to 400 techniques or asanas depicted there. As long as we stay within the limit of two, three hundred, we can say, okay, that's realistic. What's more than that is just legend. It's just embroidery of legend. It's like exaggeration because if you say there are eight million asanas, then your brain goes in awe oh, and it says there is so much to know that even if I study asana, one asana every day, one life would not be enough to know 8 million asanas because there are not 8 million days in my life. And therefore, it's a sort of number of all, like how many lifetimes, how much knowledge should one have to be able to fathom all the yoga science as revealed by Shiva. It's a mind-blowing number meant to simply put you in a state of being impressed, in a state of awe, and it does not have to be taken literally. But he says among them, 84 are the important ones. And Garanda is not the only one who says that somewhere else in yoga there exists a tradition which actually describes those 84 uh, classical asanas. So boiling down from 8,400 or from 84 lakhs to 84, that's 100,000 times down, boiling it down. And now that's realistic. And among those again, 32 have been found to be especially useful in this world for the mortals. So it's obviously he's pointing to the fact that he's going to describe only those 32 because he says even those 84 are a little bit much. For example, here when you study Hatha Yoga in Agama in the program contained up till level number 14, you are studying approximately 60 of these asanas. At this point of the teaching in Agama, we consider that this 55 to 60 postures of the body, techniques, asanas, are more than enough for serving the purpose of guiding your evolution, of helping you to develop different things in the human being. 
Geranda himself has stopped at 32, and that's exactly how the idea is. You are going to see also that another text in its most popular form, the, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, describes only 16 asanas. Again, a number. 32 is a special number because it's 2 times 16. 16 is 4 times 4 or 2 at the 4th potency, and 32 is 2 at the 5th potency, and so on. So it's like what I'm trying to say here is all these numbers are numerologically special. So out of 84, he boils it down to 32, which is another significant number. So you have 8 million asanas like the outer shell, 84 like the bigger shell of asanas, 32 like the inner core. Even in those 32, you can boil them down to 16 like in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. And even then, maybe some people would choose some out of those which they consider particularly useful. In this way, there are, of course, ways of filtering down the asanas, like which is the most important. For example, the commentators of Patanjali, they just keep only the one, two, three, or four asanas, which are cross-legged sitting meditation postures, because Patanjali doesn't care, practically speaking, about Hatha Yoga in any way. And then the only art in Raja Yoga as described by Patanjali is to describe postures for meditation, to find which postures are good for concentration, meditation, contemplation. But of course, here we are not in the yoga of Patanjali. Here we are in the yoga of Matsyendra and Goraksha. Here we are in Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga. And therefore, there are 84 classical asanas. There are 32 very important ones. And the list could be further boiled down. Uh, here in Agama, for example, when we do the teacher training program and most of our program here, we always go first through most of these 32. This core group of asanas from Geranda Samhita is very important. In Agama here, because we are not preaching an, uh, a Hatha Yoga, which is a form of contortionism or just stretching or acrobatic things, there are about five or six of these 32 asanas, which are really, really difficult, which means out even among our pupils, perhaps only one in 20 can get to do those because of the flexibility or lack of flexibility of the body. And because of this, those asanas, we know of them, we inform people of their existence, but they are not taught in the curriculum of Agama because they are almost physically impossible. Like the average person would consider them a feat of contortionism, that you have to have a rubber body to do those. And because of this, we simply don't need that because the purpose of this school and the purpose of Hatha Yoga as we understand it in this school is not that you should put your head between your legs or make some demonstration of ultra flexibility. The purpose of the Hatha Yoga is to create the skills, is to use attitudes of the body which create aptitudes in your soul and in your mind and therefore the asanas are props for the spiritual life, besides the fact that they can indeed improve the blood circulation, the endocrine secretions, the stretching of the muscles, tendons, joints, uh, and others, and therefore have and create the outer strength of which Geranda himself talks. 
Nobody denies those effects, but those effects are just the tip of the iceberg, and limiting yoga to those only is very painful, is very mutilating, because yoga aims to go much further than that. And that's why I'm simply saying that when you will, if you will want to study these things, if you'll compare the curriculum of Agama, exception made of the five or six ultra-acrobatic ones, ultra-contortionistic, physically difficult ones, you are actually finding the 32 classical asanas of Gyaranda and many of the other 84 classical asanas as well as part of the curriculum of Agama. That's why we can easily say that teaching of yoga, of Hatha Yoga in Agama is based on Geranda Samhita, Shiva Samhita, Hatha Yoga Pradipika because we respect those things. When today you go and study other of these forms of gymnastic, acrobatic, stretching forms of yoga, you will find lots and lots of asanas which have very fancy names and which do not exist in Geranda Samhita, do not exist in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, do not exist in other traditional texts. And many people have wondered then how the heck have they survived for 4,000 years and who kept them alive? And the painful truth came up some years ago when scholars published book about the twist which yoga took in the 20th century and they discovered that Krishnamacharya and his followers actually took a lot of gymnastic exercises from the British Army manuals of gymnastics and they dubbed them yoga. So much of what is done today as yoga, which is not according to Geranda, Samhita, and the likes of them, is actually originally not from yoga. There are things which are, have been grafted in yoga about 60 years ago by some yogis from India, with more or less success in the meaning like, was it really worth it? Did it actually bring some huge benefit to the modern yoga? Did yoga grow up and progress because of that? Or it is actually a distraction and a diversion which takes away the emphasis from the real important things in yoga? Of course, time will prove. In a thousand years, we'll know because uh, generally bullshit does not survive the test of time, which is always merciless. Coming back to this, actually, Geranda then even makes a survey of those. And in the shlokas number three, four, five, and six, four shlokas in a row, he can't do that in just two lines. He uses about eight lines of text for this. He simply says, the 32 asanas that give accomplishment in this transient world are. And then he lists them. He makes a list which for those of you who don't know yoga to the core, to the bottom, probably won't mean much because all of them are Sanskrit words. Of course, many of them are just the words of asanas which you know in the Agama system, and those of you who did the, quite a few levels of Agama will immediately recognize because these are classical names of very, very famous asanas. He does not call them something asana because it would mean repeating the word asana 32 times redundantly, so he says from the beginning, these are asanas and these 32 asanas which give accomplishment in this transient world. So he makes it very clear. What are these asanas for? They are for this transient world. 
Either by this transient world he means it in the Hindu-Buddhistic meaning that he means samsara, and then he means all the levels of the universe, all the levels of manifestation, or he might mean it sometimes in the meaning of uh, this transient world, like we are mortals, we live in the physical world, we have a physical body, you need a physical body to do asanas, when you are in the astral body and you have left your body, you don't need to do asanas because headstand has no meaning when you have no physical body or other things like that. And that's why, of course, he seems to point like that the asanas are physical methods. You use them with a physical karana, with a physical instrument. And that's why, and he says that they give accomplishment in this transient world. Like in this physical world, the use of asanas can give accomplishment. He actually uses the Sanskrit very powerful word siddhi, which means perfection. That these ones are giving siddhi and perfection. And siddhi is a very, very slippery word in Sanskrit, and on purpose it is ambivalent, because siddhi, in from one standpoint, it means spiritual perfection. Many yogis have been called siddhas, mahasiddhas, and so on. But at the same time, it is siddha, siddhi also means paranormal abilities, like to be able to do some hypnotic or telepathic things. This is a siddhi in yoga. So in this way, Patanjali is on purpose, I'm sorry, here Geranda is on purpose ambiguous because he simply says, in this mortal world you can use asanas. Let's not forget they give us outer strength and inner strength. And the 32 asanas which give inner strength, they are giving perfection or siddhi in this world, which means they can take you to siddhi as wisdom. They can give you enlightenment, as the very first asana is clearly poised to, but they can also give paranormal abilities, like there are asanas which generate some paranormal capabilities of the mind when they are not done as gymnastics, but when they are done with concentration and with interiorization. And because I need to read them, I wouldn't even need read them, but I am here going through the whole text verse by verse. Of course, he says, the 32 asanas that give accomplishment in this transient world are Siddha, Padma, Bhadra, Mukta, Vajra, Svastika, Simha, Gomukha, Vira, Dhanu, Mrita, Gupta, Matsya, Matsyendra, Goraksha, Pashimotana, Utkata, Sankata, Mayura, Kukuta, Kurma, Utana Kurma, Utana Manduka, Vriksha, Manduka, Garuda, Vrisha, Shalabha, Makara, Ustra, Bujanga, and Yoga. And of course, all of them are Bujanga, Asana, Yoga, Asana, and all that. Since we are going to go through each and every one of them, then it is useless for me to start to try to translate the name of each one of them. Very, very many of them refer to animals and things from nature. And without any further ado, in the shloka number seven, he starts describing them one by one. In starting with a natural order which he has in his mind, and therefore he starts with one which he considers very important. And many, many yogis, I don't remember if Geranda himself comes later with this conclusion, they consider this one the topmost of all the body postures. And that is, of course, Siddha, Siddhasana. The very name Siddha 
means perfection and perfection if it's spiritual perfection it means enlightenment or liberation and if it is perfection of a sense organ then it means clairvoyance or other and other paranormal abilities so siddhasana is the asana of perfection and it also can be understood as the asana of siddhis the asanas which gives paranormalities or paranormal abilities. Siddhasana is inevitable in yoga, can't teach yoga properly without at one point or another teaching Siddhasana when it's number one in Garanda Samhita. And those of you who will bother studying Hatha Yoga Pradipika probably will do a satsang here at some point uh, with that text as well you are going to see that in Hatha Yoga Pradipika, out of 16 essential asanas, still number one is Siddhasana itself. So Siddhasana in many, many texts is kept as number one among all the asanas. He describes it and the descriptions are so hilarious. I tried to follow the Sanskrit text and the translations given by famous Sanskritologists and uh, sometimes even Sanskritologists get completely confused by the way one like Geranda can talk because they talk very, in a very weird way. Like they don't really try to explain how to do the asana in two lines because there will be many details which they cannot say in two lines and they did not intend to create a book of initiation. The book is for them and for their disciples so that they remember what they have studied along the months and years while they studied. So it's more like a memento. It's more like, rem like bullet points. They are, they are not having the intention to really give the explanation. And that's why they don't bother too much about describing in full detail. Because if you've done Siddhasana, when you read this, you understand, of course, what he's talking about. You immediately remember Siddhasana, I know. But if you would never have seen any picture of Siddhasana and you would read or some others are really hilarious, you would really get flabbergasted. And I'm going to give you examples of some asanas where you can easily read it in two totally different ways and then two totally different asanas would result out of that, which actually has happened in the history of Indian yoga. Shloka number seven describing Siddhasana says, Place one heel against the perineum and the other above the penis. It's written literally penis and uh, not generative organ or not uh, genitals or something, which is uh, showing that this text is written by a man for another man. That's why some yoga teachers of the 20th century, when they started educating women in asanas, they sometimes needed to make adjustments because, for example, in the case of the woman, the heel, the second heel, will not be put above the clitoris, but actually onto the clitoris. In the case of the man, you cannot put the heel onto the insertion point of the penis because it would simply mean mechanically squashing the penis and taking it out of commission sooner or later. Therefore, it's the the disposition of the feet when it comes to such a detail as the anatomy of men and women has to be adapted to each gender's anatomy. That's why some teachers, they described Siddhasana, how does it work for women? Because for men, it says, 
place one heel against the perineum. But guess what? The women have an extremely short perineum, which is the muscular bridge between the vagina and the anus. And you cannot hit that with a heel. The heel is much bigger, wider than that. So actually what's happening is that when women do Siddhasana, the heel is slightly entering in the vagina. It's kind of bulging into the entrance of the vagina. That's what perineum would be for women. And when they place the upper heel, it does not come above the clitoris. It comes actually right on top, right over the clitoris. So that's why... uh, you can see that this text is written in a male environment for male disciples, as it was often the case. Very often in India, there was the clear perception that Hatha Yoga and its bigger sister, the Kundalini Yoga, are forms of yoga which develop a lot of vital energy. And because of this vital energy, people may become sexually very strong. And because of this, especially in the medieval times of India, like in starting with the 12th century and on, when India went under Islamic rule and later under Western influence, it was very embarrassing to talk about women having a huge sexual energy and prowling around like hungry cougars, like tigresses. It was simply unacceptable by Hindu moral standards, social standards. And because of this, uh, much of this yoga was kept to men's environment. And women were sent, if they really want to do some yoga, they would be sent to do meditation or to do bhakti yoga or something. Because they knew that hatha yoga might unleash a dragon between the legs of that woman. And that was like unacceptable uh, from a social standpoint. And that's why there was a certain amount of sexism, with, uh, especially with Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga. And very often it's coming from a male angle. So press one heel against the perineum and the other above the penis. Press the chin upon the chest, which is actually a mudra, one of the bandhas of yoga. And keeping the senses under control, fix the gaze steadfastly between the eyebrows. This is called Siddhasana, and it breaks open the door to liberation. Uh, This asana is described in a very complex way. It starts as the first one, and it's an asana which is described in a very colorful way. What Garanda describes here is far from the the pure Siddhasana. Because he adds elements to it. He says, press the chin upon the chest. Pressing the chin upon the chest is just a memento. It's a mnemonic for the yogis who, when you say this, anybody who did at least a couple of years of yoga knows that you are speaking about Jalandharabandha. But Jalandharabandha is not really pressing the chin against the chest. It's not just a mechanical thing. There is a position of the throat which blocks the air for coming in and out. There is a swallowing of the saliva before that. There is a collection of the energy at the level of Manipura Chakra so that the energy would have to loop in a certain way. It's a complex thing. Geranda doesn't write all that. He simply says, press the chin uh, on the chest. And he knows that everybody in yoga knows what he is referring to because he is referring that you do Siddhasana. And during Siddhasana, you also do, you also do Jalandhara Bandha. 
but then it's not a pure Siddhasana. Then the name of it should be, this is Siddhasana with Jalandhara Bandha. There are two techniques mixed. There are not two. There are three because he actually says, and keeping the senses under control, that's an interesting sentence which I'm going to come back to, fix the gaze steadfastly between the eyebrows. So when you keep the head like this, you look somewhere up here. Of course, between the eyebrows, it's brumadhya in Sanskrit, and it is a syntax used in about 90% of the texts and traditions of yoga, and it doesn't mean the eyebrows, because the eyebrows have no function in yoga. They mean you are looking towards the third eye. Ajna chakra is here. And if I would tell you, look here, it would look like you are looking towards your eyebrows, but you are looking further than your eyebrows. You are looking in the direction of your middle of the eyebrows, but not. you don't stop there. You go further there. Of course, when yogis say brumadhya, fix your gaze in the middle of the eyebrows, they mean focus on the third eye which Siddhasana, by the way, is an asana made for that. But um, they are not explaining. That's why many people who are not initiated, they say, oh, these people are looking in between the eyebrows. There is something between the eyebrows. Oh, it's actually four centimeters further up. You're looking between the eyebrows, but not because of the eyebrows. It's not the eyebrows which are the thing. It's just the direction of the third eye. So here, and this looking in the eyebrows, uh, up there in the forehead, is called frontal trataka. It's one of the five forms of trataka, which was in Kriya Yoga, which was in the chapter number one. So look what Geranda describes. He describes a position of the body associated with a bandha, with Jalandhara bandha, and associated with a form of trataka, with frontal trataka. This is not a simple technique. If you want to teach people the A, B, C, you have to take it like with a Lego game. You have to smell, to split it in the compounds, in the components, and do every component. First, let's do Siddhasana. Then, when you are good at Siddhasana, let's practice Jalandhara Bandha. Then, when you are good at Jalandhara Bandha, or in parallel, practice Trataka. And when you are good at all three of them, then you can join them together and do them as a unit. Therefore, here Geranda is uh, not keeping it simple. He is not, he is betraying his own engineering style. He tries to be encyclopedic, systematic, but actually he botches it from that stand. Not that he teaches something wrong, because what he teaches is amazing, but he is teaching it, he's a bit in a haste. He wants to speak about Siddhasana, but then what the heck, let's put Jalandharabandha and let's put frontal Trataka to it as well, because it's more cool. It will give more effects, which is true. But then we're not talking about a straightforward, straightforward Siddhasana. And from the standpoint of the pupil, here in Agama when we teach, we teach Siddhasana, we teach Jalandharabandha, we teach frontal Trataka, and then at some more advanced stage we teach that they can be combined to obtain some of the effects which Geranda is mentioning here. So, and he said, which I promised to come back to, there is one little half of a sentence added there, which says, you do the position of the body, you do the Jalandhara, and then keeping the senses under control, fix the gaze steadfastly between the eyebrows. Like if you just done the position of the body 
And then you try to go further by doing this focusing of the eyes between the eyebrows or in the third eye. Then he says, keeping the senses under control, which means in between the lines, he's telling you about which he's not giving further details. He says, here there is a borderline where you might lose control over your senses. And that's why when you cross this point, you have to be careful that when you take this practice to the next level with focusing your eyes between the eyebrows, you, ha you should have reached to a level of yoga practice where you can keep your senses under control. It's, it's very discreet. It is there between the lines, but it is not explained like why... Why would you mention it out of the blue? Why didn't he say it before putting the chin on the chest? Why didn't he say it from the very beginning? But keeping the senses under control is a general thing in yoga. Like all along history, the yogis are famous for the fact that they preach this kind of thing, that one should keep the sen one's senses under control. Of course, the most important uh, or the most immediate uh, thing is... Uh, most people go to the sex, like you should keep it in your pants, you should not uh, get too over horny or over sensual, but it's not only about sensuality and sex, it's about everything. How do you keep the sense of sight under control? How do you keep the sense of hearing under control? Not to mention that, of course, for Hindu yogis, the senses also mean the karmendriyas, which mean the action organs, and then we're referring to the hands, the feet, the vocals, how do you keep the, what has that got to do with keep your hands under control? Like, are you going to lose control over your hands and start hitting yourself chaotically like a madman in a madhouse or something like, what does it mean? See, Geranda doesn't bother to explain, but in the yoga tradition it is known that once you cross a certain bridge towards Ajna Chakra, there may appear hallucinatory effects from the five senses plus the internal sense, so from six senses actually. And this uh, has to be, one has to learn to ride this tiger. One has to learn to stay centered, focused, and not lose track of what's happening because many, many people have been uh, disturbed by what's happening when you cross that bridge. And that's why here... Geranda is correct. He, he says it. You can see that he knew what he was talking about. And keeping the senses under control, fix the gaze steadfastly between the eyebrows. Why? Because you are going in no man's land. You are exploring the twilight zones of the mind. You are going in some places which are wild, and there you need to keep your senses under control. Again, not in the meaning that you lose physically control over it, but in a more subtle way, the interface with the mind. And he ended by saying, this is called Siddhasana, and it breaks open the door to liberation. It's the only asana in Garanda Samhita, not the only out of the 84 classical ones, but it's the only asana in Garanda Samhita which has such an effect quoted. This effect, ruins any idea of Hatha Yoga being as gymnastics. Because here you have a simple cross-legged meditation position, which is not that simple. It's quite sophisticated in some way. And he says, it breaks open the door to liberation. Liberation. 
moksha, mukti, liberation, to reach liberation. The practice of siddhasana breaks open the door to liberation. It's like there is a door to liberation and that door for most people is locked or closed. And practicing siddhasana, one breaks open the door to liberation. Which means this asana opens the path or makes possible for you no more and no less than liberation. Forget about clairvoyance. Forget about cities. Forget about health and healing. This is the biggest of them all. Moksha or mukti. Well, if you say that there is a body posture which can open the gate to liberation, it's fantastic. It means if you do siddhasana, you are going like it makes possible liberation. I remember when I was studied, studying in India with my Indian guru from the sannyasa, one of his very advanced disciples, I met with him and this man was making some demonstrations of staying in meditation and in states of samadhi for a real long time. Like he was able to sit eight days, ten days without lying down or anything. Like he would sit in a meditation posture and go often in states of samadhi. And then I asked him what was his method for it. I wanted to see his method because we had the same teacher and uh, he was doing some things which I was not doing. I was doing some things which he was not doing. And I asked him about his method. And his method was Siddhasana. And I said, how long do you do Siddhasana to reach to such effects? Because, of course, I knew about the effects of Siddhasana. We teach it in Agama. But still, I wanted to see what was his standard. And he said, you have to be able to sit in Siddhasana without moving a finger for four hours. Like the three hours and 48 minutes, probably he didn't know exactly that standard or it was lost along the way. And what reached to him through his teachers was four hours. So he said, you should be able to sit in Siddhasana for four hours. Here is a lesson for you, even if we don't meet ever after today. You go alone on an island and you want to practice yoga for the rest of your life. Here is one thing that can save your day Siddhasana, four hours per day, four hours non stop. That's your practice. You do Siddhasana four hours per day, it breaks open the door to liberation, which means you can reach moksha in this lifetime, in this body. Asanas can be very important. They are not a joke. They are not just a physical thing. They are much, much more in the moment when a physical thing can break open the door to liberation. It's fundamental to understand that. Of course, don't just do it like this. Wait to be initiated and taught because Siddhasana is not a simple as that I'm not teaching you Siddhasana, I just gave a simple account of it. For example, it is a known thing that if men do more than one hour of Siddhasana per day, there appears a sort of blood anemia in the area of the penis, and the men for long periods of time cannot sustain erections. 
which means it causes a sort of physiological impotence. So there is a price to pay if you sit four hours per day in Siddhasana, then you are celibate also in that period of time. And uh, therefore, some people might want to think twice before they do that and choose something else which practiced will give spiritual effects. Of course, Siddhasana is fundamental. In the shloka number 8, he goes to the next one on his list, which is Padmasana. Siddhasana and Padmasana, the perfect pose and the lotus pose, are always coming number 1 and number 2. These are the most emblematic positions of yoga, with the difference that Siddhasana is more ascetic and a little bit more easy to perform physically. Padmasana, the lotus pose, is for some Western people a killer. Like they simply can't do it because of the stiffness of the legs and especially of the knees. You are again not advised to try at home Padmasana or something unless you can do it easily. And if not, to wait to be taught properly. Here we do preparation for Padmasana for a few weeks or months and then people try to do it because I have personally known people that have broken their knees, literally fractured their knees, by trying to do Padmasana with a lot of willpower and enthusiasm, but with very little intelligence and common sense. And therefore, again, this will not replace being initiated properly in the asana. Padmasana, Shloka 8. Place the right foot on the left thigh and likewise the left foot on the right thigh, Cross the arms behind the back and catch hold of the big toes by performing a mudra behind the back. Place the chin on the chest, again Jalandhara Bandha, and fix the gaze to the tip of the nose. This posture is called Padmasana and it can destroy all diseases. It doesn't say liberation. And there are, of course, a lot of things to be said. First of all, again, there are additional things. It's not just the posture, but it says place the chin on the chest. Fix the gaze. Fix the gaze to the tip of the nose. Like, okay, Jalandhara Bandha, front, this time is not frontal trataka, but it is nasal trataka, that you fix the eyes, you cross the eyes so that you look at the tip of your own nose. This is again a hybrid technique. It's not, he is not using the pure technique. He is using Padmasana with Jalandhara Bandha and with Nasikagra Drishti. So it's not a clean Padmasana. Moreover, for a very mysterious reason, and again, you cannot reproach it because it's not that like Geranda didn't know yoga. He is one of the eminent names in the history of yoga. But mysteriously, he calls it Padmasana but he, he chooses to describe a peculiar version. He chooses to describe a different asana altogether. In the yoga text of today, if you go through some yoga book, you are going to find people sitting in Padmasana and crossing their arms behind their leg and catching hold of the toes. But that is not called Padmasana. That is called Badha Padmasana. Bada, like in Banda, meaning tied up. So it's the tied up Padmasana, it's the bound lotus uh, in, uh, in, Western, in English translation. And therefore, again, here he does not describe Padmasana. 
because the truth is that if Gyaranda would have described Padmasana, pure Padmasana, he would have said perform Padmasana like this and like this, and he would have said this asana can also give spiritual effects and emancipation. Padmasana is perhaps the only asana in the cross-legged sitting asanas of yoga that can rival with Siddhasana. Siddhasana clearly is mentioned, it breaks open the door to liberation, and then somebody could say, and so does Padmasana also. The lotus pose is also good for that. A pure Padmasana is a spiritual posture which activates also the third eye and which is meant for spiritual accomplishments. But here he describes something else. He describes Bada Padmasana with Jalandharabandha and with nasal trataka. And then the effects are very different. He doesn't even mention anything spiritual. He says this posture is called Padmasana. Actually not, it's called Bada Padmasana. And it can destroy all diseases. Again, you have to take with a pinch of salt these kinds of statements because there are going to be plenty of them in this chapter and you may get deluded. When the yogis say it can, this can destroy all diseases, you can kind of say, right. You know, it's like really all of them, could I think about something like the Lyme disease or Alzheimer's or something which is not touched by even by Bada Padmasana, like really all diseases, even the Huntington Korea and other genetic disorders of the human being, the Down syndrome or like everything. When you say all diseases, it's a very huge statement. But of course, one can always argue that Gyaranda is not a university professor in medical science. He doesn't really know what all diseases mean. But then you say, why the heck doesn't he temper his language then? And he says it cures many diseases. It cures a lot of diseases. Why does he have to go so radical and to say, and it can destroy all diseases? Because it's like false advertising. He makes bigger statements than what he can really sustain. And uh, you have to take it always with a pinch of salt. Because the yogis were not really accurate in this way. They used a lot of enthusiasm. They did things from the heart, with the heart. And for him it worked like this. Like, yeah, you do Bada Padmasana and it heals you. And so like, right, everything. Well, yeah, well, now that you mention it, not the fracture of the bones, right? That's a disease or something. Or you cannot heal a fracture of the bone by doing pada, Bada Padmasana. I didn't think about that. Well, probably Geranda didn't think about 1,016 different other diseases, which cannot be healed by Bada Padmasana. But because there are many other things which will be improved, he's enthusiastic and says, this asana can heal all the diseases. So take it in the proper way. Take it with a pinch of salt, because these statements are not authenticated medically. They, some, they contain an important dose of enthusiasm into them. And he moves further. The next asana is given two shlokas. Sometimes he finds that he wants to give more description or so mysteriously some asanas, instead of one strophe, they are given two. And such is badrasana, bhadrasana. Place the ankles in reverse manner under the testicles. 
I'm literally saying what the text says, and it's like, what does it mean to place the ankles in a reverse manner under the testicles? It's like if you don't see somebody doing Badrasana, and you say, ah, that's what they meant, it's like really weird. Place the ankles in reverse manner under the testicles, cross the hands behind the back, cross the hands behind the back, the same mudra, and take hold of the big toes so you don't you go down under the bottom, under the buttocks. Fix the gaze on the tip of the nose, that comes up again, and perform the mudra called Jalandhara. As you can see, Garanda is very much in love with Jalandhara. He describes three asanas, and in all three of them he put Jalandhara Banda, and in two of them he put focusing the eyes on the tip of your nose, and in one of them he put focus the eyes on your forehead. It's All of them are, until now, all of them are not taught clean. He's teaching hybrid asanas mixed with mudras, positions of the hands and so on, and, and uh, with uh, Jalandhara Banda and with Trataka and others. And he concludes, this is Bhadrasana, which destroys all sorts of diseases. At least here, he uses a toned down message. Here he doesn't say which destroys all diseases. He says which destroys all sorts of diseases. It's a general statement, which means it's good for a lot of things. It's a very healing asana. But of course, I'm not going to bother starting telling right now what's it good for, because that's what I teach privately to the pupils when I teach them about it. In a similar way, when you take the text of Badrasana here in the curriculum of Agama, you are saying that there they are mentioned about 20 to 30 physiological conditions which are healed or helped a lot by the practice of Bhadrasana. For example, Bhadrasana heals a lot of diseases of the perineum. It's excellent especially for women because it heals most of the diseases related to the genital, to the female genital system. So the lists are known. They have been studied by medically oriented yogis especially in the 20th century, and created, uh, you know, like systematized. But you cannot expect that in Garanda Samhita. I want you precisely to hear Garanda Samhita, to hear the simplified way in which they think, the aphoristic. They boil it down, they say a few words, they don't describe it very clearly, and from time to time they remember to say about one effect or two. It, when it comes to Mayurasana, the peacock pose, they mention about 10 effects of it, but usually they mention one effect, maximum two, and sometimes they forget to mention any effect whatsoever. They simply let you think about the effect through the name of the asana, like the name is pointing of what this asana is all about. So the third on the list here was Bhadrasana, which destroys all sorts of diseases. Fourth in the line, Muktasana. Place the left heel at the root of the penis and the right one above it. Keep the head and neck straight, uh, aligned with the body. This is called muktasana and it gives siddhi or perfection. This is very close to siddhasana and it is the posture of liberation, muktasana. <clears throat> Therefore, it gives, it immediately makes us think that there must be something spiritual also with this one since it's a cross-leg sitting position and it's not something which will bend your belly, arch your back, 
do things to your head or it's ultimately it's a cross-legged meditational like posture and here it mentions keep the head neck straight aligned with the body this is called muktasana the posture of liberation so it kind of points to the fact that it might lead to liberation and it gives siddhi you find this statement that this posture gives siddhi in several asanas in the list of Gyaranda and uh, it's a very big double entendre because in India, in some parts of India, Siddhi and Siddha is a word which means enlightened being and Siddhi means perfection, perfection of consciousness and therefore enlightenment and in some other parts of India and sometimes in the same parts of India, the word Siddhi has the double entendre meaning where it means perfection of the sense organs and it can mean seeing, auras, levitating or other powers of the mind anecdotally legendarily mentioned in uh, yoga so this is called muktasana and it gives siddhi or perfection of course the name of it makes us think that he means spiritual perfection but he is still not explaining and that's why he leaves it on purpose a little bit ambiguous then he goes to the next in his line the fifth in his line is vajrasana the diamond pose, which is one of the great classics, described in a very funny way. Make the thighs, say, he says, make the thighs tight as diamond. All those of you who do or did Vajrasana, you know that in Vajrasana the muscles of the thighs get very tensed, get very stretched, <clears throat> and therefore they give the impression that the thighs are really hard. Comparing it with diamond is a little bit of a funny thing, but it is done in the yoga literature. So make the thighs tight as diamond and place the feet by the two sides of the anus. There are so many details, but he doesn't bother. He just says it, just roughly describing. This is called Vajrasana and it gives Siddhi to the yogins. Again, what Siddhi? Paranormal powers because it works on Ajna, Chakra, spiritual emancipation because of the same Ajna, Chakra, Gyaranda doesn't bother and you have to study Vajrasana in a yoga school and there you are being told exactly what sort of accomplishment does Vajrasana do. Here in Agama, this is one of the relatively easy asanas which we study in the very first level of yoga as one of the easiest sitting meditation, third eye type of positions. Six on the line is Svastikasana. Svastika is the whirling cross, which today is uh, so detestable in the world due to the modern history with Nazi Germany. <coughs> in the old days in India, you know that they have Svastikas all over the place to the dismay of the Westerners. <clears throat> because in India, Svastika, Svasti is an auspicious sign, and Svastika means the best auspicious energies of nature and of the human being, and that's why Svastika as a symbol and Svastikasana are considered to be highly beneficial, and the Hindus, not having been touched so much by the modern history with the Third Reich and all that, they don't care and they refused to ditch one of their best traditional symbols, because it was politically smeared and compromised by some Western countries' politics. So, Svastikasana, 
fold the legs and place the feet between the thigh and calf of the opposite leg. It's a peculiar thing which when you are taught you see that when you fold your feet, when you fold your legs, the foot fits exactly in the cleft between the thigh and the calf and it actually goes a little bit in there. Sit up straight easily. This is Vastikasana, auspicious. He uses just one word. He says this is Vastikasana, auspicious. Auspicious what? Physically, financially, in terms of your emotional life. It doesn't matter. He doesn't say generally. He just uses, he just throws one word. This is Vastikasana, auspicious. Auspiciousness all over. He doesn't mention what it is. Enjoy it. Svastikasana is auspicious. In Agama, we consider this asana also easy enough, not for all, but easy enough. And that's why this is also one of the asanas taught in the very first level of Agama teaching. To give to people an alternative to Vajrasana, like to have at least two positions for meditation, concentration, and other techniques of the mind. Of course, we have people who have so stiff legs and so many problems in the body that even Svastikasana and Vajrasana, they will be too much for them in the beginning. And then they are bound to do some mental techniques, some concentration, sitting on a chair or other such uh, surrogates of the cross-legged sitting positions from yoga. Svastikasana, number six in this list, uh, fundamental sitting position. As you can see here, Garanda does not mention anything about the chakra, where it works. In some of them it says you focus between the eyebrows, this, that. Here he doesn't mention. So if you are not told exactly what this vastika is, why is it called svastikasana? What is this vastika? What is this auspiciousness? Auspicious on which chakra does it mean? And so on. Then you wouldn't know. Here, of course, in Agama, we explain to you that Svastikasana is, first of all, activating Manipura Chakra. So this auspiciousness, like things are good, everything which is beneficial, as we say, focus your mind, eliminate negative thoughts, bad obsessive things. On the contrary, focus on everything which is beneficial, superior, universally valid macro. This beneficial is Manipura Chakra. So they are connected, but you have to know some yoga to know where this is pointing. Seven in his list, Simhasana, the lion pose, which he describes in two shlokas. Cross the hills under the perineum, knees on the ground and hands on the knees. Open the mouth widely, perform Jalandharabandha and fix the gaze on the tip of the nose. This is Simhasana, the destroyer of all diseases. Again, the description is incomplete, still quite suggestive, like those of you who ever did the full Simhasana, you know that you could describe it that way if you'd want to boil it down to a few words. And then to conclude, he gives, says, perform Jalandhara. Actually, it's not a Jalandhara in practice, in the tradition the contraction of the throat, it's not touching the chin on the chest, which is the actual Jalandhara. So here there are variations. Teachers' lineages have sub-variations of the different asanas. And fix the gaze on the tip of the nose. 
Here in Agama, we prefer to fix the gaze on the forehead for bringing it more spiritual power. So there are versions of it. And when he wants to sum it up, he says, this is Simhasana, the destroyer of all diseases. Right. Like uh, if you have a shorter leg and a longer leg, will Simhasana lengthen your shorter leg? If you are born with uh, genetical idiocy because of the thyroid gland, will Simhasana heal that and make you smart and normal again when your brain has been damaged in the intrauterine life within the womb of your mother? You have always to take it with a pinch of salt. Gyaranda is so enthusiastic about Simhasana that he says this is a very powerful asana which heals and heals and heals and heals and heals so many things. I don't even want to bother to sift through them. And therefore I'm telling you this is Simhasana, the uh, destroyer of all diseases. Take it with a pinch of salt. It's not literally about all diseases. It just means it's a very healing asana. People who do Simhasana know that even for a common cold or some of the things which occur in the daily life, Simhasana is one of the first things you would do. Simhasana is a real, real good asana. And yes, indeed, it's famed for healing a lot of things. But it has spiritual effects. It has psychological effects. It makes you go from ego towards egolessness or noble feelings in the human being. Yes, I don't, know, I don't think Geranda didn't know this. He just didn't want to put it in a verse or two. It was too short and he did not intend to give a full account of Simhasana. He just intended to remind of the existence of Simhasana and therefore to speak aphoristically, to speak briefly about it, not to go into the details of it. To get into the details, you come to a yoga school, you study it. There you are given the full story and then you have to practice it to start accomplishing some of that full story. I'm going to continue with this list, which of course is long. We are to asana number seven, and there are 32 of them. So probably we'll cover half of this list today and half in the next uh, satsang. The next on his list is gomukhasana. Gomukhasana, I'm saying it in advance so you don't get disappointed. The gomukhasana, which is a very, very useful and uh, very good-looking asana and many has many other benefits, um, which we teach in the very first level here in uh, Agama Yoga. Gomukhasana from Geranda Samhita is not the Gomukhasana which we teach. Here we already have one of those cases in which the names don't fit. <clears throat> Whatever Geranda calls Gomukhasana, it is not the Gomukhasana that we do in Agama. And uh, you would say, well, who is to, believe, to be believed? Agama Yoga or Geranda, who is one of the classics of yoga? The funny thing is that most people in yoga, if you tell them Gomukhasana, they do it the way we do it in Agama and not in the way in which Geranda describes. So somehow Geranda with this, he lost credibility on this name. He described it like this. And more than 50% of the yogis, considerably more I would say, they said, nah, that's not really what we call Gomukhasana. Here you botched it. You should have called it something else. 
he says, place the two feet on the ground by the side of the buttocks, which is a very like to place the two feet on the ground by the side of the buttocks. It can mean for those of you who know that you sit in yoni asana, that would be placing the two feet by the side of the buttocks. But if you cross your legs and you place the right feet by the side of the left buttock and the right, the left feet by the side of the right buttock, then that becomes virasana, as we call it here in Agama. So the text itself, I specially left it like this. I, I did not try to embellish the text. I know somebody who did a translation of Geranda Samhita, and uh, Sanskritologically and scientifically, he was a total jerk because he knew how the asanas were supposed to be, and he simply started stretching the translation to sound as he wanted it to sound. But then he didn't make a translation. He just uh, improvised. He just composed his own text. That's not, if you want to be honest to the text, you have to let it be as it is. And the text as it is, it's fuzzy. It says, place the two feet on the ground by the side of the buttocks. That could be even if you are squatting. If you are squatting and put your buttocks down and you are just squatting with your feet beside you, then you have put the feet on the ground by the buttocks. It doesn't even say with the sole flat on or with the sole up and turn upwards. He doesn't mention. He just says place the two feet on the ground by the side of the buttocks and keep the body steady with the mouth slightly upwards. This is called gomukasana and resembles the muzzle of a cow. Actually, most commentators who have said this, they have said that the only muzzle of the cow resemblances is either because of this slightly elevating the mouth, stretching the neck like this, still doesn't resemble to the muzzle of a cow, but the knees, when you do go the virasana thing, the knee, this folding of the knee, reminds somehow of the muzzle of a cow, this tip of the knee. I'm doing it with the elbow, but imagine I would be doing the same thing with one of the legs, so the knee here would be a little bit like the muzzle of a cow. Still, this is non-traditional, and although it comes from Geranda, as you can see, Geranda is just a human being, he's following a system of names of his own, and therefore he's not infallible, nobody's infallible, and that's why uh, always you have to use your own mind and use your own evaluation. And uh, what does he do? He doesn't say. He says this is Gomukasana and resembles with the muzzle of a cow. Right. What is it good for? He doesn't bother. You'll learn that from your teacher. The next on his list is Virasana. The right leg placed over the left thigh and the other foot under the other thigh. This is called Virasana. Even this is not clear. There are two ways of describing or three ways of describing Virasana in uh, yoga. And of course in the Neo-yoga, in this Hatha Yoga, the modern Krishnamacharya Yoga, which is British uh, Army Gymnastics, then Virasana became something completely different. It's almost like a dance position where one is doing a very heroic stance of the body, but it definitely it's not a sitting position, crossing legs and so on. Here in Agama, we are performing the Virasana by the traditional not exactly, exactly like it fits with the description of Gyaranda, but there are, of course, many, many details added to it. And he continues a little bit more. He continues with Dhanurasana. 
Danurasana is a very interesting asana, which of course here in Agama we teach it in the first level, but it's a very, very interesting asana from the standpoint of the study of such a text, because it is an asana which can be interpreted in two wildly different ways. And, that, and different schools of yoga did. We in Agama think that the appropriate name for Danurasana is the asana which we are teaching you in the first level. And actually, if you are Googling Danurasana or if you are looking through yoga books, nine yoga books out of ten are going to show you that Danurasana is the way we teach it here in Agama. But a great teacher from whom I took some teachings, and I'm talking about the great Direndra Brahmachari, whom I appreciated enormously as a yoga teacher, Direndra Brahmachari had got his lineage from a Kashmirian form of Hatha Yoga, and there Danurasana has reached as a different interpretation of this shloka, and therefore the Danurasana of Direndra Brahmachari was a wildly different thing from the Danurasana which we teach here, and it actually corresponded to a totally different asana. Let's first read and see how such an interpretation can come. Danurasana said, stretch the legs on the ground straight as sticks, catch the toes of the feet with the hands, and arching the body like a bow is called by the yogins Danurasana, which of course is logical, Danush is a bow, so this is the posture of the bow, arching the body as a bow is making up the posture of the bow, logical. But guess what, if always when you interpret this, you say you lie down, you catch hold of the legs, and you arch your body. You mean you arch it backwards. But in the lineage of Direndra Brahmachari, they said you cannot keep the legs straight. To keep the legs straight, you have to bring your legs overhead, put them on the ground, and then stretch your arms and catch the legs. And that is a variation of halasana, the posture of the plowed. So actually, Direnda Brahmachari, when he taught Danurasana, he taught a close version to what here in Agama we teach as halasana, the posture of the plow. So some people call the plow Danurasana, and some people call Danurasana the rolling posture, which you all know from the first level. This is a typical example which shows how the issue of Sanskrit names and description of asanas actually is. Why is it so convoluted? Why it is so confusing sometimes? Because even in a good manual like Garanda Samhita, the description is interpretable because Sanskrit is a poetic, fuzzy language and things can be twisted, you know. What is about the effects? What does Danurasana do? Garanda is silent about that as well. And he moves to the next one. I lost count. I don't have the count of the techniques. I have the count of the shlokas. Here we are at shloka number 19. And Garanda takes time. He boiled it down to 32 asanas, the most important asanas. You wouldn't expect that he would keep this one in the list, but he does. And that maybe will make you never forget how important this asana is. Because people always try to do asanas like acrobatic things. And it's not only acrobatic. The, this asana, the shloka number 19 asana here, is mritasana, which is an alternative name to shavasana, to the relaxation, the posture of the corpse. It's equivalent because shavasana means the posture of the corpse, 
and mrita, mrityu means death. So mritasana means the dead posture, the posture of the death. It also has a very scary name. Like people say, oh, I am a lover of life. I don't want to do the posture of death. Which is absurd because life and death are inseparable. And if you cannot die properly, it means you are not living properly. And mritasana is described as such by Geranda. Lying flat on the ground like a corpse is also called shavasana. This post, so he bothers to explain shavasana, which is, hey, forget about the relaxation. Everybody knows that the yogi is relaxed, but that's just some flabby laziness. No, it's one of the 32 most basic asanas. When he came down from 8 millions to 84 and from 84 to 32, he still wouldn't drop out shavasana. So important it is. And he says, this posture destroys fatigue and calms down the agitation of the mind. That's what it is good for. Now you're going to say, of course it destroys fatigue because you lie down and you rest. You can, I mean, either Geranda was a total simpleton, he was a half of a moron, and it's like, oh, if you lie down, it destroys fatigue. Obviously he meant something else. He meant chronical fatigue. He meant things which are deeply embedded. Like when people are burned out, we get sometimes coming to Agama people who have been in the corporate world and the capitalist companies work them to the bone and squeeze them like a lemon and then when they are burned out, they take a sabbatical from their corporate life and they come to Agama in search of regeneration and in search of a second chance. And Shavasana is a must for these people. Because it removes fatigue, not the simple daily thing. Because you just sleep eight hours and you have removed fatigue. It removes the fatigue which is in your bones. It removes that tiredness which has become a chronical thing, which is a psychosomatic thing. It's a deep thing because it also, he also says not only that, and it calms down the agitation of the mind. In yoga, for great yogis, according to the theory of yoga, Nothing is worse than the agitated mind. An agitated mind is the sure recipe for disaster. An agitated mind is the source of failure and is the source of fiasco. It makes one to be a loser eventually. With an agitated mind, you cannot reach accomplishment. And destroying the agitation of the mind is very important. When some of you will be yoga teachers, you will see this sad truth that the more the years pass, the less people can relax. 60, 70 years ago, Swami Shivananda, in a short text on yoga, he said, if people could at least learn the relaxation from the yogis, just this, that everybody on the face of this earth should do 15 minutes of relaxation once a day. Like when you feel that you are too stressed out, Lie down and do 15 minutes of relaxation. Lie down like dead and do 15 minutes of relaxation. Shivananda said the world would be a changed place because so much evil, war, frustration, crazy ideas, perversion and things result from the fact that people have an agitated mind and they are tormented. They live in a mental and in a psychomental hell. And if people would learn at least to relax, as soon as people would feel that they go to hell, they would lie down and relax at least 
And maybe it wouldn't work 100%, but if it would work 85%, then still a large amount of people would be out of the throes of such terrible things. Agitation of the mind is the very opposite of yoga. Yoga is the stopping of the mind. Yoga is the peace of mind. And that is given to you by Mritasana, by Shavasana. Therefore, never skip Shavasana. Skip many things, but not Shavasana. Shavasana looks so unimpressive that people will tend to skip it. Don't skip it. Asanas in yoga don't need to be impressive. They need to be efficient. And Mritasana, Shavasana is very, very efficient. It calms down the agitation of the mind. I said I don't know how many of you have ever taught yoga, but we see it in yoga. The more the years pass, the more we get in the first level, people who cannot relax. They come to a yoga class, and even those pathetic 10, 12 minutes of meditation which the yoga teacher is doing with you, they absolutely can't sit quiet. They can't lie down quiet for 12 minutes. All is required from you is take a deep breath, lie down, and lie down as dead. Don't move a finger. Don't bat an eyelid. Lie down there and think about something beautiful. Visualize a lotus flower in front of your eyes. You know, do something nice. People cannot do that. They lie down one minute and then they get the eebie-jeebies. They start scratching, twisting, twirling. They are completely neurotic when it comes to it. This is the symptom of the lack of the peace of mind. You need something to calm down the agitation of the mind. And asanas generally do it, but shavasana is really, really good at it. I remember once I witnessed a dialogue between a yoga teacher and a disciple of him, and this disciple was dejected because he didn't know how, like he, he was in a peculiar situation and he couldn't meet this teacher and there was no other teacher in his neighborhood and he didn't know how to continue practicing yoga. And he had learned some four or five months of yoga and he thought it was highly insufficient. And he said, what can I do? Like I'm left without instruction. How can I really go deeper? And that teacher told him a great word which stayed with me. He said, even by deepening the performance of the technique of relaxation and shavasana, one can reach the states of cosmic consciousness. He knew what he was talking about. Yeah? Like, the big things are not necessarily impressive or acrobatic. Do a perfect relaxation and you'll enter in states of ecstasy and superconsciousness. The modest relaxation is so much, actually. But people are looking for superficial, impressive things instead of going really deep. Remember, a yoga guru was telling to his pupil, if you can't do anything in yoga, just deepen the relaxation. Every day do hours of relaxation. Go deeper and deeper in relaxation without falling asleep, without, like, stay there and go, and miracles will happen. You don't need to do anything more than just this. Just relax. 
relax and relax and relax and relax and relax and relax and relax some more and there it is right by right in front of you and uh, let us quote one more just to reach to 20 so i know exactly where i stopped one more asana of this list gupta asana hide the two feet under the two knees and place the anus over the feet this is known as gupta asana it the description is ridiculous like i bet if you have never seen guptasana done don't even know what the heck this guy is talking about and uh, you can of course find it on internet and in yoga books and as you can see he doesn't bother to describe it really clearly and he doesn't give any effect he says this is known as guptasana what does it do well learn from your teacher i just reminded that among the 32 classical ones there is a guptasana this is how geranda deals with it i know that in a certain way this part describing the kriyas and describing the asanas are parts of this text which are a little bit tedious because we are just going through an endless list of 32 asanas and they are not described completely and we are not performing them right now together like it's not a workshop or anything it's just an account for your mind conscious and subconscious that at least once in your life you have heard sage Geranda talking about yoga. That's what Geranda has to say about yoga. This is his simplified, beautiful way in which he is describing yoga. And uh, we have a lot of reverence. I, for one, have a lot of reverence to the tradition because this tradition has crystallized in hundreds of years. It took many yogis and many centuries to put it together, to piece it together, to eliminate the things which are harmful, to discover the way things are working, to keep only what is valuable and very valuable. And in this way, the tradition is priceless. The tradition is amazing. And without the tradition, I and we here in Agama, we wouldn't manage to teach you yoga. It would be, we'll be uprooted, would be like completely without roots, suspended. But this is what gives us the roots, the connection with the history of yoga, the connection with the ancestors, with the gurus, and last but not least, the, collection, the connection with Shiva, who created the science of yoga. This is how it came. This is how it comes to human beings. That's why still the analysis of such texts is valuable, because it gives you a subconscious, energetical, telepathical attunement to a tradition which is very, very big. Let us stop here tonight. Thank you all for joining. Next week we are going to continue with the rest of the list of asanas and perhaps go into the next chapter as well. With this we have stopped for tonight. Namaste to all of you. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.